Thanks for listening to the podcast from River's Edge Church in Spokane, Washington. For more information or to gather with us on Sunday, visit our website at respokane.org. We hope this message is impactful for you and others as we pursue the way of Jesus together. Can you hear me? No? You can hear me? Okay. All right, why don't we find our seats? We'll get started. Good morning. My name is Chris, for those who I haven't met. Um, this is my first time teaching here, so I'm excited. I'm excited to get in the scriptures with you today. Um, as you guys should know, we are going through teaching through the Bible in a year. Um, but this week, we kind of land on a gap week. So I get the opportunity to, to teach on something that is not going to be touched on in this Bible in a year, um, and that is wisdom literature. Uh, so yeah, we're going to get into some wisdom literature today. Uh, what is wisdom literature? Wisdom literature is a section of the Bible that consists of Job, Proverbs, and Ecclesiastes. Um, these three books kind of share in a similar uh, theme of, of talking about what it means to be a human how to be a human. Uh, Proverbs has these enlightening words of wisdom. Um, Ecclesiastes teaches you not to chase after vain worldly pursuits. Um, and then Job is a little bit different. It presents itself as a narrative, so it tells the story of this guy Job. And that's, that's the book I want to focus on this week, the book of Job, um, as fun as that is. Uh, because... As Job wrestles with the problems that he faces in his story, I think he teaches us how to communicate with God in our suffering. So if you have your Bible, go ahead and turn to Job 1.1. We're going to get there in a second. Uh, first, I want to talk about what Job is. Uh, little is actually known about Job. We don't know who wrote it. We don't know when it was written. Uh, the best guess is somewhere between 2000 B.C. and 900 B.C. So that puts it anywhere between the time of Moses and the time of Solomon. So that's really cool. Uh, and, and Job, like Psalms, Proverbs, and Ecclesiastes, uses a poetic structure. So that just adds to the, the struggle of even reading it and understanding it. But the heart, the theme of Job is Job is wrestling with suffering. He's wrestling with good and evil. He's wrestling with... Uh, the justice of God. And the theme of the book can really be boiled down to that age-old question of, uh, if God is good, why do bad things happen? You know, the problem of evil. And so the book of Job is about being human in a fallen and corrupt world, in a world that is messy and full of pain, and trying to reconcile that with, with God's goodness. So with that in mind, we'll jump into Job 1, 1 through 3. Uh, this introduces the man of Job. It says, There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. And that man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. There were born to him seven sons and three daughters. He possessed 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 female donkeys, and very many servants. So, this, so that this man was the greatest of all the people of the East. So you kind of see that Job is this very well-off man. He's a righteous man. God has blessed him. Um, he has lots of, of possessions and children, and, and he's just living a good life. Uh, but then skip down to verse 6. It says, Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. 
and Satan also came among them. The Lord said to Satan, from where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? Then Satan answered the Lord and said, does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the works of his hand, and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and touch all he has, and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. So Satan, also known as the accuser, challenges God, and he challenges um, this, this righteous man that, that God is talking about. He says that Job's only righteous because you're giving him all this stuff. You're blessing him. I mean, that's, that's the only reason he's, he's faithful to you. Like, take that away and he'll, he'll curse you. And so God gives Satan this ability and Satan doesn't even hesitate. He goes down and starts with Job's oxen and donkeys and the servants working with them and they're all killed. And while he's still getting the message of, of those deaths, a second servant comes in and brings uh, more news that fire has come down from the sky and, and consumed all of his sheep and the servants with him. And yet while the second messenger is still talking, a third one comes and says, a band of raiders has come and taken all your camels um, and killed the servants with them. And yet, while the third messenger is still there, a final messenger comes and brings the worst news yet. A wind has come down on the house of his eldest son where all his children were and it's killed them all. And I can imagine what might be going on in Job's mind. The first messenger comes and tells him, okay, like, your oxen are all gone. He goes, okay, you know, that's, that's too bad, but I can deal with that. Uh, the second one comes, and it's his sheep. He's like, okay, this is getting a little crazy. Third one comes, and now it's all his camels and all these servants with them. And he's like, man, this is super weird, right? Like, but that's okay. Like, like we said, Job's a really wealthy, well-off man. Like, he can replace that. But with the fourth messenger... Uh, news comes that you can't really replace money, right? He loses his kids. And so the next line, it says, Job arose, tore off his robes, and, and shaved his head, and fell on the ground and worshipped. He said, Naked I come from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. I don't know about you, but I don't know if I could do that. So Job 1.22 ends the first chapter by telling us that in all of this, Job didn't sin. So he lost all this stuff. He worshiped God. He didn't curse God. He didn't sin. And so Satan goes back before God. And he says, all right, sure. Okay, you took all of his stuff. But what if you afflicted him? Surely if you afflicted him, he would curse you. So God says, all right, go for it. Afflict him. Just don't take his life. And so Satan does that. He goes down and, he, and it says Job is covered from head to toe in boils. And I don't know if you've ever had a boil, but those things are miserable, just terrible. Uh, just even to touch them, it's just disgusting. So he's covered in boils and he's sitting in ashes. Um, and then Job's friends come. And this is going to be central to the rest of the book, Job and his friends. And so they, they're, they're coming and they see someone in the distance. They don't recognize it as Job, but as they get closer... They recognize, oh, that's, that's our friend Job. And they just see the condition he's in. And it says they break down in tears. They tear their own clothes. 
they throw dust on their heads and they sit with him. And they sit with him for seven days and seven nights. And that's probably the best thing they did for him because after this, they don't really <laughs> do very well. Um, but then he has 34 chapters. He's going to follow a certain pattern. You're going to have Job's friends. He has four friends, but the first three friends are going to say something, and then Job's going to respond to each of them. And then it's going to happen again, and then a third time, and then after that, Job will have his final speech, and then the fourth friend, Elihu, will speak, and then we'll hear from God himself. Uh, but first, I want to highlight some of the key things that, that uh, Job's friends are saying, and then the things he's sort of responding to. So in Job 4, Eliphaz, uh, the first friend to speak, says, basically, the innocent do not perish. To which Job sort of responds, like, but have I sinned? She doesn't believe you sinned. Then in Job 8.6, uh, second friend Bildad says, look, basically, if you're pure, God will restore you. Okay? He's telling Job, look, if you're pure, God's going to restore you. Don't worry about it. And in Job 9, God says, or Job says, how can man be right before God? How can man come before God and be right? And then Zophar, the third friend, says towards the, the, the middle of the book, the wicked will lose everything eventually, right? So as you can see, the friends have kind of each of their own explanations as to why Job is suffering. Well, it must be because you've sinned. Uh, it must be because you're not righteous. It must be because you haven't repented. But the crazy thing is, if you're not paying attention and you're just reading along, you might find yourself like agreeing, like, yeah, okay, the wicked will lose everything eventually. Like, I think Proverbs says that, you know, the wicked will come to ruin. Uh, yeah, God does lift up the humble and, and, and the righteous. Uh, Proverbs seems to tell us that if we do good, good will be done to us in return. That's kind of the gist you get, right? And so, clearly, Job must have done something wrong. That's what seems logical and straightforward. But, as you can see, Job adamantly defends himself. He says, I've done nothing wrong. Um, and then you get to the end, you get to Elihu. And Elihu is an interesting guy. At the beginning of chapter 32, uh, you get this little intro paragraph into who Elihu is. Uh, and it reads, so chapter 32, 1, So these three men ceased to answer Job, Job's friends. They ceased to answer him because he was righteous in his own eyes. Then Elihu, the son of Barachel, the Buzite, of the family of Ram, burned with anger. He burned with anger at Job because he justified himself rather than God. He burned with anger also at Job's three friends because they had found no answer, although they had declared Job to be in the wrong. Now Elihu had waited to speak to Job because they were older than he. And when Elihu saw that there was no answer in the mouth of these three men, he burned with anger. So Elihu is angry that Job would justify himself rather than justifying God, right? So Job's suffering, he should justify God's allowing him to suffer instead of justifying himself, saying, I haven't sinned, I haven't done anything wrong. And so Elihu then breaks into this long speech. He says that what he has to say is, is wisdom, what he has to say is knowledge. Um, and he wants to show that God's justice is perfect, so he repays man according to his works. That's something he says in, in Job 34.11. So Elihu finishes his tirade, and it's like two chapters long. And finally, God himself speaks out of the whirlwind, calling Job to attention and rebuking Elihu, saying, 
Who is it that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? And then God briefly rebukes Job, uh, Job's friends and their cold black and white logic. And then he turns his attention to Job. And for the rest of the book, he's, he's directly addressing Job. <clears throat> and remember that over and over again, Job has been asking for an audience with God. He wants to defend himself before God. And he's got some serious questions to ask about God's running of the moral universe. He's asking God, why am I suffering? And now finally, we get God's response. Perhaps God will tell us firsthand why good people suffer. Perhaps he will tell us firsthand how he can be completely good and they're still suffering in the world. But God's answer is a curious one. It's not one we would think. So I've highlighted a couple of verses here of what he says to Job. In verse 38, 4, he says, Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? In 38, 8, he says, Who enclosed the sea with doors? In 38, 12, he says, Have you ever in your life commanded the morning and caused the dawn to know its place? In 39, 1, he says, Do you know the time the mountain goats give birth? Do you observe the calving of the deer? And in 39.19, he says, do you give the horse his might? And then God will go on to describe these incredibly terrifying monsters, the behemoth and leviathan. And they're just, they can't be subdued. They're, they're crazy. They're monstrous. And in, in the end, he says, but even these can't stand before me. And so in other words, God is asking if Job understands his role in running the physical universe. Yes, if, if Job can even comprehend how he runs the physical universe. And Job, with less confidence now, doesn't add anything to, anything to what he has to say. Instead, he says, I've already said my piece, but I'm not going to say anything anymore. And so he doesn't concede, but he doesn't add anything. So you see, Job was questioning God's uh, running of the moral universe. So we had Job's friends who say, well, the moral universe is black and white. Let us explain to you what is happening. You received bad because you've been bad. That's obviously what it is. And Job seems to respond with, look, I get that. I want the moral universe to be black and white, but that's not what it looks like. I've not done anything wrong, yet I'm still suffering. So I demand an audience with God to critique his running of the moral universe because I should not be suffering. And then God finally speaks and he says, your friends are wrong, but do you have any right to question how the moral universe works? Look at the mystery of how I orchestrate the physical universe. Do you know, do you understand the intricacies of how it is run? You can't even grasp it. In the same way, you won't grasp the mystery of how I orchestrate the moral universe. And there's a lot more going on there than you understand. Do you really want an audience before me? The fiercest creatures in existence can't stand in my presence. So you sort of get to the end of Job, and it doesn't really end the way you'd expect it to end. You had all these questions, like, God, why do bad things happen? And you don't get any of those answers. We know we can't make the same mistakes as Job's friends, right? God came and just rebuked them all, and then at the end of Job, he tells Job to go make sacrifices for them, for, for repentance. So we don't want to be like that. 
but we don't get this grand reveal. We, God doesn't really tell us why there is suffering in the way that we look for the answer. There's a sense in which the book ends and there's still this tension in the air. The, the intellectual question we ask doesn't get answered. Why do good things happen? Or why do bad things happen to good people? So what do we do with all this? What can we take from the book of Job? Well, first off, I think we can clearly take uh, a lesson that suffering and morality are not always bound to one another. Job wasn't an error and he suffered greatly. Likewise, Jesus never sinned and he uh, suffered incredibly. So we can't go the route of Job's friends and assume black and white rules govern suffering in the world. Much of wisdom literature expresses what generally happens when we do good. There isn't, but there isn't some sort of like Christian karma, like we do good, good things happen, we do bad, bad things happen, right? That's just not how things work. We can't assume that things will happen always like that in a corrupt world. Yet when we suffer or natural disaster strikes, or whatever the case might be, our tendency is to ask those sorts of questions. Why did this happen? Why am I suffering? Have I done something wrong? Is this God's judgment on me? And I think those are assumptions that Job's friends made. In 2014, I was living in Liberia, West Africa with my family. And in March of that year, um, West Africa faced one of the largest Ebola outbreaks in the world. And some of you might remember all, all those news stories and how crazy it was, and, and it was crazy. Uh, but Ebola is this nasty, terrible virus that just removes you of all dignity. Uh, you bleed from every hole in your body. You're bedridden. There's just nothing you can really do for yourself. Um, and it's spread through bodily fluid, literally blood, sweat, and tears, and, and more. Many people actually contracted the virus because they were trying to help a loved one get better. So there's actually no cure for Ebola. So if you get it, you kind of just basically wait to beat the odds or, or die. Um, and where I lived with my family was on the same compound where the biggest Ebola treatment uh, facility was. Uh, there were three units where they were doing treatment. The first one was built in the hospital chapel. The second one was in the hospital laundry room. And the third one was just a bunch of tents in an open field next to the hospital. Um, and at that time, little was known about how to treat Ebola, right? It was basically just get them in there, get them on a bed, get some fluids in them, and then wait and see what happens. <clears throat> so what else can you do? Here are all these suffering people, and Ebola had no age discrimination. There were children, and they were elderly, and Ebola killed them equally. So here are all these suffering people, and it was incredible suffering. But what do you do? What do you do as a Christian? How do you interpret this incredible suffering of dying in innocent people? Do you assume that it's God's justice or his judgment on them? Because let me tell you, Liberia, it's a super corrupt country. It's one of the most corrupt countries in the world. So clearly that, that should be it. That's God's judgment on them. You know, That's why everyone's getting sick, because they're corrupt. They're evil. That's just how it works, right? The moral universe is black and white like that. Surely it's their fault. So should we have gone around with a bullhorn and told them to repent 
told them to, to turn from their ways, because that's probably what Job's friends would have done. Or is it that black and white? Maybe instead you sit with them, you sing hymns to them, you read them stories, you pray with them, you help them recover if they can, and you give them some dig dignity um, in, their, in their death if you, if you can as well. You sympathize with them, and you just be present with them. And those were the choices that those treating them had to make. And I watched my friends and doctors step in and risk their lives to love the dying in that place. And never once did they assume that their suffering was linked to their morality. Uh, and that's why they treated them. And that is a key point, that suffering and morality are not always bound to one another. And we need to remember that in our own suffering. But I think that Job also has some profound things to teach us in terms of communicating with God in our suffering. Do we assume that we're entitled to a fun and easy life and then raise our hands at God when things don't go right? Do we assume that good people should only experience good and God's to blame when something goes wrong? Or do we rest in the promises of God? Because it's going to happen. Suffering's going to happen. We know that. So, but we ask, why does it come? Where does it come from? Unfortunately, the book of Job doesn't really tell us that. It doesn't really answer that question solidly for us. In fact, it raises as many questions as it does answers. But we still have the promises of God. We know that. We're told that, that God will provide for us. In Romans, we're told that all things work together for the good of those who believe, right? We have those promises. <clears throat> but what we see in Job, in the person of Job, is someone who's not afraid to ask the tough questions. God, why is this happening? God, where are you in this? And I think when we're suffering, we too should feel the freedom to ask those tough questions. And he's the only one we should ask those questions of. Yet, God didn't answer Job's questions. He didn't answer those questions for Job. And I don't think that means that they're wrong questions. I think they're still good questions to ask when we're suffering, to, to get that off our chest, but maybe there's a better question to ask. Because the turmoil really comes down to how do we reconcile God's goodness with our suffering? And of all the questions we could ask, by far I think the most, the most productive question is, God, how are you going to use this for good? Right, Because we have those promises. How do we reconcile it? But we want to know why it happened, and we're dying to figure out why bad things happen to good people. And that's why Job and his friends argued about it. That's what Job wants to ask God. But ultimately, God never answered that question. And as, as a result, I think it's, it's safe to assume that there might be a better question. But it won't be the first question you ask. I mean, there's... And that's okay. There's, there's a lot of, of stuff that goes into suffering and mourning than asking questions. <clears throat> there's an understanding of contentment that comes before you're able to, to ask that question. Contentment in, in, your, in your spot, in your suffering. There's a time of mourning and processing the situation first. A time of resting in God's promises and faith. Before you can ask the tough question, like Job, Job sat in silence for seven days before he even spoke, and he worshipped God. 
He didn't, he didn't question anything at that time. And finally, we're able to come before and ask questions because God is at work in the world. We can trust that God is working out good in the world and that he himself has experienced suffering with us. There's a level of solidarity because God became man and suffered in our place. Uh, but he overcame it. And this is all possible through the sacrifice of Christ, which the author of Hebrews says in Hebrews 2.17, Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. And so through the sacrifice of Christ, we, as, as Christians, as believers, face a new reality, a reality that Job never came to, um, and, and that reality is expressed again by the author of Hebrews in, in chapter 4, 14 through 16. He says, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way. Just as we are, yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence, so that we may receive mercy to find grace to help us in our time of need. And so right now, Christ is in the heavenly sanctuary, in the heavenly throne room, on the right hand of God, advocating for us. And it says, unlike Job, we are able to approach the throne of grace so that we might receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Now, is, is suffering hard? Yeah. Are parts of this reality painful? Unbearably painful? Yeah. But we don't belittle that. We don't sweep it under the rug. We don't pretend life isn't hard. What we do is, is we express that before God. We cry out to Him in our suffering. And, and we do. We do ask the tough questions. But in addition to that, in addition to asking the tough questions, we also ask the pertinent question. God, how are you going to use this for good? God, what does it look like for me to trust you in this season? You clearly know how to run the physical universe. Maybe I'll trust you in running the moral universe as well. Maybe I'll trust that you're working in the midst of my pain. And we now have the ability to come before God and ask those questions with confident assurance that there is a merciful and understanding high priest who advocates for us. Jesus knows what it is to suffer because he himself experienced the very same evil we have and we will and we do. Um, and he is with you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time to come together as a body of believers and read your word. Uh, we pray for, for ourselves and for others in times of suffering that uh, you would be with us and, and bring us through it. Um, pray that you would enable us to be uh, comforters and uh, just be with people who are suffering. God, we thank you for 
your son who you sent to die for us on the cross that, that we would receive eternal life, something beyond what we experience here, uh, and that he is at your side advocating for us, listening to us, um, and, and ultimately can sympathize with us. We pray all these things in your son's name. Amen.